Welcome to Conversations with Women and Hollywood. I'm Melissa Silverstein, your host. We talk with the women creatives who are making things happen in the film industry. Women in Hollywood educates, advocates, and agitates for gender equality in Hollywood and the global film industry. For daily updates on what is going on, please read us at blog.womeninhollywood.com. Also make sure to check out our resources at womeninhollywood.com. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can also find us on SoundCloud. Today's conversation is with Sheila Nevins. She's the patron saint of documentaries and has been running HBO documentaries since its inception. We're talking today about her quasi-memoir, You Don't Look Your Age and Other Fairy Tales. Sheila, thank you so much for chatting with me on this glorious Friday in New York. Beautiful today. Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm so happy. First day with sun. I, I thought the sun had forgotten to shine. I know, me too. So, this is your first time on a book tour. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about why you decided to write a book. Why now? It's a tough question because I think I'm not sure I have a really precise answer, but it seemed the right time. I'm not young. The end was not necessarily near, but that there was less ahead than behind. Mm -hmm. And there were sort of untold stories I felt about myself. I rarely am able to talk about myself. I'm always talking about the film that I'm selling or the document I'm selling. Even though I'm aggressive and can be obnoxious, I'm, I'm always selling my wares. I'm not selling the person who's brought the wares to you. I and I felt, you know, sort of like being backstage your whole life. Yep. And then you say to yourself, hey, you know what? Maybe I could just come out, so to speak. Everybody's coming out, so why can't I come out old? So I came out old. And I thought that should be my hashtag for whatever time is left, coming out old. Coming out old, all right. I'm not sure everybody would would come on it, but I just thought, you know, it's time, it's time. I've overheard things. I've lived things. I've hidden from things. I've cried over things. I've lost friends. I've found friends in the strangest places. But mainly I've sold other people's wares. And I think it has a lot to do with being a woman. I couldn't be up front as a woman because I began so early in this business and it was almost an embarrassment to be a woman at that time. So it was easier to sell somebody else's story. Right. It never occurred to me that I had a story until I thought, hey, wait a second, there's so little time left. I'm going to tell a story now. It's my turn. You know, your book is unique because it has all these audio readings that go with it that your friends have recorded of the different chapters of your book. And some of the chapters are really short and some of them are a little bit longer and some of them are seem to be in your voice and some of them have other people's names attached to them. But what I found when I started, I listened to a lot of it, but then I picked up some of it and then I was able to hear you, your voice, when I was reading it myself. So right. talk a little bit about why you decided to have this accompanied audio reading, and that's something that's so, you know, integral to this. Okay. It happened accidentally, maybe on purpose. I didn't realize that this was a kind of sly memoir, that there were things in there that I chose to hide behind imaginary people, sometimes, sometimes not. Mm -hmm. And I was slightly embarrassed when all the stories came together that I thought possibly I had gone too far. Uh -huh. Anyway, one of the things I had done is written a poem 
long time ago to myself about Larry Kramer. We were doing a documentary about him. I was really kind of like, I just love this man. Yeah. I went to see him because I, everyone told me he was dying, and I thought, how can we do a documentary if I never met the person and he's still alive? And you know, I, I have to meet Larry Kramer. So I, you know, sort of finagled my way into a meeting, and it turned out to be in a hospital. Right. And he was kind of in and out. He was very drugged, and I thought, well, I, this is a privilege to be here by this great man. And then I thought, I'll come next week. But in my heart, I thought there would never be a next week. But there was a next week, and a next week, and a next week, and a next week. And then he got better. And then he got home. And then he got married. And then we became like friends. I would say that it was probably one of the great friendships that I've had. Because I could tell him anything, and he could make me feel good all the time, even if I felt bad about myself. And to me, he became a miracle because he, he evolved healthy, healthier, and still caring and fighting and, and feisty. So many, many weekends, we would have walks and cream cheese together on Sundays. And then we discovered we had homes near each other in Connecticut and continued the relationship into there. But I would say he's my adulterous affair. The fact that he's gay and I'm straight has very little to do with the fact that we're madly in love. And so I wrote this poem before the book, oddly enough. And um, then when I really thought I'll write this book of all kinds of things, I'll do the Larry poem. I'll put the Larry poem back in because I often scribble to myself. I scribble through college. I scribble, you know, I don't have a desk at work. I just scribble. I'm a good scribbler. So it was Larry's 80th birthday. And um, I said, let me let me make a party for you. So I made a party and I invited you know, locals and people we knew together. And I also invited Kristen Baranski because she was very friendly with Larry. I wasn't sure whether she would come. I didn't really know her very well. I'd been to screenings where she'd been at, but, you know, I didn't really know her. And Christine walked into my house, and she liked the fabrics and, you know, whatever, you know. And she loved, loved Larry. And we all sang happy birthday. And there were more people came than I ever expected would come because so many people love Larry. And I had the guy... Took the poem out. I gave it to Larry's husband to read, and he said, "Larry's going to love this. Give it to Larry." And I thought, I said, "Larry, would you read this poem that I wrote about you?" And, you know, and I gave it to Larry, and he gave me a big kiss. Okay, so Christine was sitting on the couch right next to Larry. So I said, "Christine, would you read on an audio book? I don't know. How it sort of came down, you know, from heaven or hell or wherever. Uh, would you read this poem if I did an audio book of this?" And she said, of course, I would read anything about Larry. So then I thought, whew, if Christine Baranski is going to read the Larry poem, what about all these other things that I've kind of written and I'm going to put together? And You know, maybe I could get well-known people to read it. And that would in many ways, first of all, they read it better than I would read it. Secondly, it's not about documentaries. And thirdly, it distanced the book from myself in a very impersonal, personal way. Mm-hmm. So, after Christine, and she was one of our first readers, right? Yeah. After Christine, and all along, I started to write impossible dream emails to people. Alan Alda, you know, Marlo Thomas, um, you know, uh, Ellen Burstyn, Kathy Bates, uh, RuPaul. You know, I started to do these, hey, guys, I wrote a book, blah, 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 blah. Here is the uh, 
whatever, what did you call that version? I forgot the version we had it in at first. It was called a, uh, and it was an incomplete version, but they, it was together. It was like the, the galleys, the galleys. And so I would send the galleys, um, no one had asked for them, I would just send them, i send an email and say, I'm sending you a galley. And, uh, you know, Alan Alda would call and say, I want to read part of the course, and I hadn't talked to Alan in years. And Marlo, I think I got her on the phone at some point and suggested two stories, and she said, okay. Gloria Steinem, I knew one story, I knew that there were many that were not right up her alley, but there was one that I thought would have been perfect for her, which was really about menopause. And then um, strange things happened. Meryl Streep sent a letter to me at HBO, and I didn't think it would be in a set of M Streep. I had no idea who M Streep, I mean, it shows you how I'd long forgotten that, <laughs> that I'd written to her. And um, I was opening mail and, you know, stuff, you know, I'm not, you know, just tossing things away, saying I should answer, I shouldn't, I should And then I opened it and I started screaming out loud and I ran up and down the hallways, you know. And then I thought, I've made such a fool of myself, this is probably a joke. And, but it wasn't. It was addressed to Sheila Nevins, HBO, and it said, um, you know, you've done a great thing by writing this book, something to that effect. That's not the exact quote. And then it said, I want to read some kind of hot, when with a question mark and where it's pretty accurate right and then it was xxoo Merrill well I thought I had died and gone to heaven I was so excited mm -hmm. and uh, that's how Merrill happened Gloria Vanderbilt I sent her the book I did not have any idea what Gloria would want to read but I didn't want to leave her out because I I had worked on a film with her and Anderson Cooper, and I liked her so much, yeah. and so I sent her the book, but with no suggestions at all, and she called at the office, and uh, we were all excited that she called back, and she said, Gilda, darling, that's so wonderful what you wrote, I love this story, I said, did you want to read one, and she said, oh, yes, she said, I want to read the one on adultery, yeah. I, said, I said, adultery, and she's 92 years old at the time, now I think she's 93, whatever. And, um, but going on 18, I said, adultery? You want to read the one about the adulterous elephant in the room that's going to run away with somebody else's husband the next day? And she said, oh, yes. She said, I know a great deal about that. And so we went, Rob and I and Chance, to her house, which was as quiet as any sound studio on Beekman Place. Yeah, Beekman Place. And, um, she suggestively read the story. And then she had also asked on the phone if she could read the one about the loss of your child, the death of a child. Yeah. And I would never, in a million years, as aggressive and you know forward as I am, I would never, ever, ever have asked her to read that. As a matter of fact, I thought that one would be one that I would probably read because I wouldn't subject anyone to that story about losing a child. It was just too painful. And then she said, and I would like to read the death of a child, and um, I, again, she said, I know a lot about it, and she read it very directly, she didn't cry, she didn't, she was very stern, she took a deep breath, and she read that story, because she felt it belonged to her, and, and uh, it was her story to read, she's a fabulous actress, and um, she didn't have to act on that one, and she yeah. certainly had to act out the other one, so I got more aggressive in asking people as these things kept moving on, and then we had this one for Carrie Fisher, and Carrie didn't make it. 
read the story. And I'd gotten an email from Carrie the week before that basically said, all right already, I'll read your book, I'll see you, and I'll do it. And so we had it scheduled between Christmas and New Year's, and we never got to get Carrie to read it. So that was really sad, because I, I haven't been in California since she's died. I haven't been there in a long time. I have to go in two weeks. And the thought that I won't see her is almost unbelievable to me. Which ones did you want her to read? She was going to read Melissa Van Holdenboss, uh -huh. right? Was, it, was there another one we gave her, or just that one? I think we just gave her Melissa. It's about a woman who sleeps with her boss in the 60s. Yeah. Let's talk about Melissa a little. Oh, no, let's not. No, you don't want to talk about Melissa? I'm happy to talk about anything. You know me. Okay. So, you know, read some of these things, and I was, you know, taken aback by some of the things that you put in this book, The Honesty. I always love you because you're just so honest. And I saw your interview with Leslie Stahl where you basically said, I slept with my boss and I got a promotion. Yeah. Um, and so I think about, you know, young women today looking at that. And, you know, it was a very different time and you were very different. And clearly there is a distinction in, in yourself in the book about when you switch from Cosmo to Ms. Right. So you don't think that people should do that now. What do you think people should think about that piece? In particular? People or women? Women. I think I say in it, don't be hard on her. It was the 60s. Right. And I think the point really is about Melissa, whoever she may be, is that Melissa didn't have too many choices in the early 60s. Right. She didn't even have a pill. Right. I mean, she was still running around with a diaphragm. She was not going to make it. There was no question. I, I was... Um, you mean up the ladder of... I mean, you, you talk up about the ladder. There was, about there was, ambition. You were not going to make it up the ladder. Right. You were not going to make it up the ladder. There was no way. Right. I was extremely ambitious and simultaneously very depressed. Right. I had married the wrong person just because I couldn't travel. You couldn't travel. A single woman traveling was very difficult. I, you know, I got out of college in the 60s. I got out of Yale in 63. And I got married really, so that I could see the world. You know, I married a guy who would travel with me, uh -huh. and I was really miserable. And I got a job teaching English on camera, and I didn't want to be on camera. I've never wanted to be on camera. I wanted to make shows. I wanted to direct theater, but I couldn't direct theater because I'd married a guy who said, you have to be home on weekends, you have to be home in the evenings. Right. I had nothing. So, so I took what was then a very pretty face, and I stuck it in front of the camera, and I taught English for USIA for two years, for two years. And I wanted to go. They were making a film about the Job Corps in Catoctin, Maryland or whatever. And it meant that I would have to sleep over away from, the, you know, being married. And I, would, and I couldn't get the job. I couldn't get off camera to go behind the camera. There was no way. And so maybe, maybe I was Melissa. Yeah. And maybe it was the only thing I knew to do to get away from being in front of the camera. I wanted to be a producer. Mm -hmm. I wanted to do theater. I didn't even know what television was. My mother didn't even let me have a television set. Right. But I mean, I did what I had to do. I had to earn a salary. Right. I didn't know how to parlay on camera to off camera. I really didn't know how to do it. Right. I only knew one thing, that this guy was pinching my ass, or I should say Melissa's ass. Right. So was I Melissa or not Melissa? Not exactly accurate. I was never in publishing. Was his name, you know, the lawyer from, he kept saying to me, are you sure there's no one named Mr. Pennybrock? I said, no, I made up the name Pennybrock. 
does anyone in your office name Penny Broth? I said, no, I made it up. Anyway, that time of my life is long over. But it was a time in my life. And, and I would be dishonest if I said I didn't get the job at Catoctin, Maryland to work on the job corps as a PA. I would be lying if I said I didn't get that job on Monday. There were no other women on that shoot. I was the only woman on the shoot. I mean, and, and uh, wow. I, I got the job. That must have been really hard. It was painful. Yeah. yeah. It was just as painful as an abortion was sleeping with your boss. Wow. But I did it because I wanted Because you were ambitious. I was ambitious, yeah. I mean, I love that you embrace that because it's still such a, you know, scarlet letter for, for women. It will always be. Yeah. And for reasons I don't understand. Talk. Why is that? Why is it? You know, you write about it all the time. Um, I, Why is it so hard to be a woman in a man's world? Because there's a deep well of misogyny in this country and this world. But you see, that in, in this world, it's veiled in some way by a certain kind of um, symbolic, you know, there's a woman doing this, a woman doing that. But look at what they do to women in other countries. Yeah. I mean, look at all the films we've done where women have acid in their face. Right. And, you know, and, and you know, it's... It's almost as if we have a certain kind of benign neglect where it's, it's, it's better than the effrontery and the incredible physical torture and pain right, right, in many right. of these groups of people. I mean, it's incredible. There must be something. I wish Darwin was alive. I'd like to ask him, in this sort of evolution of our species, assuming you believe in it, what happened to make men not feel that women could play the same ball game. Right. I don't know what that was. Yeah. I think it has to do with childbearing and maybe a competitive spirit in the sense that you can't make a child without, uh, you, you know, you, 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 I mean, one day I guess they'll have artificial sperm, but I don't think you can make an egg. I don't know. I don't really know. But it's deep-seated. Deep. Deep, deep, deep-seated. Deep yes. So talk a little bit about your, I mean, I loved your piece, the, the Cosmo versus the Miz, the kind of, like, your your birth into feminism and discovering... Now, Lena, Lena read that piece. It was very interesting because <laughs> the first part, she was, like, reading in another language. When she got to her part, the, the part that was about the emancipated woman or the woman trying to be emancipated, she had a whole different emphasis in her voice because she was in her territory. Right. So she was in my territory. It was a little more stilted when she read it. Was that almost a physical change for you, mental, physical, when that happened, when you realized that I'm no longer that person anymore, I'm this person? You know, it's very interesting. I, I cannot believe that I'm going back to the Job Corps piece in Cockton, Maryland, which was probably in 1968 or something, whenever that was. But I remember being on the shoot as a PA, having just been on camera, and I remember somebody saying to me, you look so much better with makeup. And I was extremely insulted because I was really working very hard and I was taking notes and looking at continuity. It was, it was a film, you know, whatever. But I, 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 I was embarrassed that I couldn't be just a regular worker, you know. And I, you know, I, I don't really know what I felt. But I had some rough times then. I, I mean, I really did have rough times. I mean, I was not, quote, unquote, a woman of the 60s. I was not really, quote, feminine at the time, you know. I would wear pants and, you know, sneakers, and, and I wanted to 
I wanted to climb the mountain and go to the job corps and do the film with everybody else. But it was very strange. At night, everybody would go drinking, and then I would, like, sit at the end of the table. It's very hard to play that game. Do you think very, very difficult. Like feminism saved you? I don't know if it saved me, but it opened my eyes. Okay. I don't know. I don't really know. I was never, I never learned to type because I was afraid that if <laughs> I learned to type, I would have to type. That same thing happened to me when I was in high school. I refused yeah, to but take typing. Yeah, younger. Yeah, I refused to take typing. Yeah, I refused. No to... way am I going to be a person who knows how to type. So it's very interesting because I went to the high school of performing arts, and I remember some guidance counselor, some of them were thinking about colleges, saying to me, you should really take a summer course. Because I wanted to take a academic course because I'd gone to a, basically a vocational high school, which was performing arts. At the time, now it's music and art. I think it is a you know regular high school. But at the time, they were preparing me for the theater, for dancing, for acting, for whatever, music. And um, I remembered wanting to take a course because I was scared that when I got to Barnard, I wouldn't be smart enough because it was so academic. And that maybe I could take a college course in the summer. So I went to see the guidance counselor, who I don't remember the name, long gone. And I remember her saying to me, you would do well to take a typing course. I wanted to take a course. I said there was a course at Hunter uh, in uh, Irish playwrights. And I thought, oh, I could take that, and then maybe I could transfer that, you know, as a, what do you, I forgot to, elective. Right, college credit. And so I would, instead of taking 15 credits, I could try to muster 12 credits with all these very bright women that were entering. You know, so, I, of course, I took the course in Irish playwrights, but I remember her very clearly saying typing, and I resented it, but I didn't know I was right. See, you could have feelings, but you didn't know they were the correct feeling. I think it's not unlike feeling that you might be gay and not being able to express it in, at that time. Yeah. You know, that's why I say coming out, you know, I had to come out in a way, and it was painful because I felt abnormal in coming out. When I went to Barnard, all the girls were getting pinned, not all, but it was a big thing. You know, you'd come into the coffee room there, and someone would say, look, I got pinned, or they'd wave you their engagement ring in your face. And I, I didn't know why I didn't want it. I didn't know there was a gang I could join that would say that was an okay decision. I really didn't know. I didn't know. How would I know? Right. How would I know that it wasn't okay to get married after college or, you know, get pinned or have an engagement ring? How did I know I wasn't supposed to? I didn't know. I didn't have any role models. Right. Well, now you're a role model. No, I'm not sure, but I think that Gloria became a very... Actually, started with Bella Abzo. Yeah. Because she was not attractive, and I thought I had to always be attractive. Right. And I thought that I that was the only way, you know... Uh, get your ears pierced, you know, wear lipstick, buy the longest mascara, you know. I didn't know you could wear a hat and not be beautiful and have a life. I didn't know that. Right. I had no one to tell me that. And Gloria, in a very interesting way, I know that beauty is, you know, you're supposed to toss it out the window and just be yourself. But part of the, 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 the envelope that said come here was that she, <laughs> she had streaked hair and long nails. And I thought, hmm, you don't have to be old and fat. and You know, you can be anybody and join this group. You don't have to be a girly girl to get in there. And that was a really, I would say that Bella Abzug was in many ways as influential as Gloria. 
But I remember thinking, oh, I could streak my hair now. You know, I always had wanted to streak my hair, but I was afraid it would be too, you know, too much the other side. There were like two teams. Right. There were all my fr- many friends who stayed home. Then there were the friends who went on to become physicists and doctors. And then there were the me's who just didn't quite know where they belonged. So I walked the tightrope for a while. Yeah. So there's this quote that I want to read to you and get you to respond to. So you say, I never took a giant step because I was afraid I would lose what I have. Yes. What would that giant step have been? Move into narrative? Go to Hollywood? I was afraid, and it was never offered. And And I was grateful to have a salary. I drew a circle, and I worked within that circle and made it the most important thing in my life. Absolutely true. I'm the kind of person who, like, if you give, like, I got an A in calculus. I think it was an A, maybe an A minus. I didn't really know anything about calculus, but if you give me an assignment, I make it my passion to do the best. I had an assignment. I heard there was a job doing documentaries. I had been at CBS, ABC, you know, and they wanted me to be on camera, and I was uncomfortable. Not ABC, CBS. ABC, I worked with Reasoner, and, you know, I did stupid pieces like dog hotels and and uh, why does a stewardess have to be called a flight attendant? What's wrong with the word stewardess? I mean, I did really stupid pieces. And then I heard about there was this job at a, a place called HBO, and it was the director of documentaries, and that sounded to me correct. I wasn't sure what it was, but instead of recommending someone, I decided to recommend myself. Did so, you think you were going to be a director, like directing? I didn't know what it was. I, it turned out that was a title, a corporate title. Right. That you're going to be a director and you're going to be like a vice, wait, what comes after director? Vice president, then comes senior executive, I'm not sure which comes next, then comes executive. I don't remember the climb, right. but I remember thinking I was going to be a director and I was so excited and I went to a store called Energetics to get, I've always had flat feet, and I went to get like a, uh, ugly, comfortable walking shoes so I could direct this thing called documentaries, which I thought would be elongated pieces of what had been on 60 Minutes. I had no idea in the world what a documentary was. I had never seen a documentary. I didn't know what it was, but it was an opening, got me away from any on-camera assignments, got me away from doing back-of-the-beat book pieces at ABC, and it was new. And I thought, what the hell, I'll give it 13 weeks. So 35 years later, the 13 weeks is long over. You're the patron saint of documentaries, like Alexandra Pelosi said. <laughs> do you? That's she's religious. What do you think your legacy is in the documentary world and at HBO? That's a good question. I hate the word legacy because it sounds like I'm already dead. But I would think that I helped show that the stories of ordinary people could be as compelling as the stories of well-known people or people who are in the public eye, that there was a there was room for every man's stories and every woman's stories, every person's stories, and that they could be as compelling as, you know, the CIA, what's wrong, or, you know, whatever. That I could I could make it as dramatic and successful as maybe a narrative movie if I tried hard enough. And that I could do late night sex shows and that I could do, I could get ratings. So if there was a movie like Bob, Ted, Till and Arrow, you know, whatever, um, I could do a f- docu about swinging. 
I could do sex series. If there was a documentary called, uh, a narrative called Jaws, I could do something about sharks. If there was uh, War of the Roses, I could do a documentary about the pain of divorce and get people to tell their real stories. That I didn't have to go to celebrities and that I didn't have to go to known figures who had written books or who were pundits. I have an aversion to experts other than the delivery man. That, that I, I'm much more comfortable with the doorman than I am with the owner of the building. Yeah. Although I'd like to be the owner of the building. I understand. I, you know, you and I have had this uh, conversation previously where I've said, you know, you have so many women working for you and you always said, you know, it wasn't on purpose. And from reading your piece on mentoring, I understand you so much better. Oh, really? Interesting. Because yeah. your mentor piece is not about mentoring. No, it's about revenge. Exactly. Yeah. And so it, it it gave me some insight. But again, I bring it back to saying you've mentored, not in the life piece in your book, and have an incredible loyalty, you know, bred loyalty of many, many women. Your your circle around you now is pretty much women. Rob, you know. Rob. Rob, I haven't met you, but, you know, I'm sure you're loyal also. And I know it's not deliberate, but it is consistent and um, ongoing. Also, you know what, Melissa? It's also unconscious, if that makes sense. It's when it's brought out to me that I'm aware of it. Right. I go for the best. I go for someone that I can help push ahead or support. I go for someone that I trust and that trusts me, that I'll do the best for them. I don't know why it turned out to be women. I can't tell you. It just did. I didn't think they were women until people said, you always work with women. I don't know. You know, I work with the best. It's hard for me to distinguish which, you know, I don't shower with them. So it's, you know, whatever it is, it is. I don't know. I don't, it's not conscious. I understand. So in closing, what do you want people to come away with when they finish your book? It's a good question. I want them to like me because I'm telling it as I see it. I want them to know that there's the story behind the cover. And I... Um, I don't really care how successful it is. I care that the people who choose to read it are comfortable with it and and say, oh, you know, I've been there. I get that. That's interesting. Um, I, I can't explain it. I don't know. It's like, you know, when you write a card to somebody and five years later they say the card you sent meant a lot. Yeah. Like I, my, my, one of my first bosses, father died 24. Five, 28 years ago and he loved his father very much and I, I mean it was Michael Fuchs he loved his father and I always knew when I worked for him how close he was to his father his father was kind of a self-made man and I wrote him a letter like 25 maybe even 30 years ago and recently I had lunch with him and he pulled out the letter I'll cry when I say this and he saved it because it meant so much to him because I had created for him that love that he had felt for his father and that missing that he would feel without him. And I thought, you know, gosh, you know, that meant something to that person. So I think it's like that. You know, I just like, I'd like it to mean something to someone. 
And it doesn't have to be a million people. It could be 150 people. I don't care how many people are there. I just care that they're, that those are there are applauding from their hearts. That's really, I don't care if the audience is full. I never did. I do for films that I make, that I work on. I want the audience to be filled. I want it to get a good reading. But in this particular case, I want it to be appreciated for its truth. Where do you think the documentary field is going next? Do you have any kind of insights into what's the next direction? You know, it has, it has phases. Murder, murder is hot now, so every day you get a murder thing. Anti-Trump is hot, so every day you get an anti-Trump pitch. Series are hotter than specials, which right. is kind of interesting. Uh, I think they're more economic. There's more monopoly money in the business than there was, in the sense that people will, will to compete with someone, spend inordinate amounts of money to buy something or to put that thing, or to own that, that show, right. or to make that show. I think the good news is it's become a commercial entity. Right. The bad news is it's become a commercial entity. Right. Uh, the good news is it's popular and everybody's doing it. The bad news is it's popular and everybody's doing it. So the idea of finding the needle in the haystack is less possible because there's so many needles in the haystack and you get pinched all the time. Um, you know, I don't really know. I mean, I don't really know. There are a lot of things that, that may deem themselves to be documentaries that I see as, you know, just, you know, ways to get an audience. I don't know. You could accuse me of that too because I did sex shows for so long. I don't know the answer. Okay. That's okay. It's like a kaleidoscope of docus when it used to be like a specific docu. Right. Well, thank you so much. For thank you, Melissa. It was good to get to know you this way. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for listening to Conversations with Women in Hollywood. For more podcasts and daily updates, please go to blog.womeninhollywood.com. For resources, to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, and to help support the work of women in Hollywood, please go to our website, womenandhollywood.com. Thank you. This podcast is produced by Adam Shartoff. Music is by Laura Karpman.